Well, hi everyone, and welcome back to Cross Wires. It's James here, and this week we're going to be talking quite openly and uh, uh, at the source. No, was that? A ter- <laughs> yeah, that was a terrible joke. Fully no. open source. We are going all the way in with open source. Now we are going to be talking a little bit about open source, but not just open sources in the concept. My guest this week has a lot of experience with business IT, with working technology, and I think it's probably fair to say is maybe considered the go-to YouTuber for PFSense videos these days. I think it auto-completes in YouTube. Is that is that the validation I'm looking for? <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you type in my name, or if you type in PFSense, it completes my name in, uh, in YouTube. Or if you type in my name, it says then PFSense. So... <laughs> I think that's validation. I think that's validation. Please welcome to the show Tom Lawrence from Lawrence Technology Services, if I got that right. Yep, you got it right. It's a mouthful. Uh, we shorten it up usually, and I say Lawrence Systems, and I say it verbally, not just type it out, because it's a lot to say Lawrence Technology Services. Uh, is it partly the YouTube channels that made us shorten up the URL. <laughs> so, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I've Got to be honest, I've been wanting to get wanting to get you on the show for a while. I mean, I think my charging status co-host sort of uh, introduced us and said, "Hey, you know, Tom, would you like to be on James's show?" And you very kindly said yes. And then, due to the joys of LinkedIn, I wasn't actually able to message you on LinkedIn because you need LinkedIn Premium. <sighs> Just yeah, I'm not giving the money either. No, <laughs> I, I did for a short while to get LinkedIn Learning, and then I realised actually there are far better services out there for educational content. Yeah, and uh, you know, random, random aside, I'm currently trying to get the um, sort of like uh, our unemployment office to fund training for me. Because, you know, getting training would be good. I'm trying to convince them to get me an IT Pro TV subscription. <laughs> you know, that would be an interesting way. Just, yeah, get people the subscriptions to that. Why not? It's like, we use it internally. It's actually uh, our internal training uh, opportunities that I have for free for my uh, internal staff. We, we have it signed up through them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a wonderful service. Uh, and again, something I heard about from you. But yeah. before we get too much into talking open source, and we're particularly going to be talking about how open source can be used in business. And I think one of the reasons this sparked an idea for me was re- seeing um, the story about France and, and other European countries starting to ban things like Microsoft Office in government and education, which is a bold move. But before we do that, before we talk about that, Tom, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself? Maybe, you know, sort of a bit of your background. I'm, I'm sure people would love to know how you ended up being the go-to source for Sense on YouTube. Well, and the only reason it was go-to for PFSense is because that's mostly what I started with. Um, so I've been doing contributions back to the open source community, sometimes just in the form of public speaking at events. And I was actually speaking at a, a local conference, local here to Detroit, Michigan, where I live. And the conference had only so many people that can get into, you know, I have all the different conferences going and all these different tracks. And I was speaking on open source firewalls, specifically PFSense and you know, hey, uh, I can't make it to your track, Tom. There's another one coinciding. Can you throw this up on YouTube? And I'm like, oh, I can probably do that. I, I'm a technical person. This seems, you know, I don't mind recording this. So some of my earlier videos were that. And I'm like, wow, these got some views. Who knew people on YouTube wanted to watch firewall videos? And that was probably around the first one I did was maybe 2015 or 16. But I didn't really put a lot of time and effort into YouTube then. So it was quite a bit later, later in 2017, when I finally said, you know, I'm going to commit some time to this because some of these videos have actually 
actually done well. And we started really putting the effort in, so to speak, to uh, do this. And I say we because it's me in front of the camera. Uh, I do all the editing and everything, but my team is a big part of it because owning an IT services company, we're always doing stuff. So I interact a lot with my staff and uh, I am not the knowledge of Tom. I am the knowledge of the accumulated <laughs> people I work with. <laughs> so, you know, and I help, I'm the one who brings it all to the, uh, sit in front of the camera and talk to the uh, blank camera while it stares back at me. It was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to admit, I learned, I will, I'll be really honest, I learned a lot of PFSense from your videos. And I think I said in, in my sort of introduction email, my TrueNAS box, which was up there, and I've actually moved into the lounge purely because this is going to sound so sad. I can sleep perfectly well with the sound of hard drives going. I'm fine with that. But I know my parents are going to stay next week. I've only got one bedroom, so I'm sleeping on the sofa. They're taking my room, but I know that my mum will not be able to sleep if she hears hard drives going. <laughs> so I've moved the NAS. Yeah. I, I may have fallen asleep in the server room a couple of times. It, when I used to work in corporate, so my career actually starts all the way back in 1995. Uh, by 2000, I was in the corporate world and had a nice server room. And I loved hiding in there because no one, it was like, you know, secure with good door access stuff. And I was one of a few people that could go in there. It was a great place to hide from people. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I remember doing like IT sort of like it was a summer, almost like it wasn't an apprenticeship, but it was like a summer, summer job. My dad got me, you know, very cheaply paid at the newspaper he worked at and they had a server room. And I remember going in there and I was only about 16 at the time. And one of the guys scared the daylight. So he says, hey, don't touch any of these buttons because we'll set off a halon suppression system like and every time I went to a server room, like uh, uh, just getting you know inched away from yeah them. those are the alarm sounds you have moments to leave or you will never leave that is the last place you will be yes <laughs> if, the, if you're in there and the halon goes off you have a problem <laughs> so <laughs> for most of you don't know what we're talking about a halon suppression system it basically removes the oxygen from the room that's the whole point of a halon yeah. so that the fire doesn't have any fuel to to burn so Right. And neither do you. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. That's a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't want to be in there. We've had some, I remember, I feel like I was on a podcast recently. We were discussing uh, people who had to escape a room where they had a fire uh, from a UPS that went sideways. So, yeah, it's, I've known people that have done it. I've known people who have hit the big red button, as it may be called, uh, for emergencies in rooms. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, always fun stuff. Lots of things to be careful about in the data center. Oh, absolutely. And lots of little fun bits and pieces to see when you're working on clients' PCs. I think my favorite moment from one of your videos is the client hot glued the SSD. It wasn't the client. It was a previous service company who'd hot glued an SSD. Yes. Into, onto a motherboard. Yes. <laughs> We're always finding things that are interesting, you know, because my career in tech, uh, I've owned, a, uh, we currently, in, in serendipitously, not because of we could see the future, but in 2019s when we wound down our retail store, uh, we just didn't have time for it anymore. And it wasn't, the retail market really seems to have contracted and not been as lucrative as we found it. Uh, we only focus on businesses, but yeah, prior to that from 2000, uh, starting technically in 2005, all the way till 2019, we did retail uh, computer repair as well. We also did some electronic repair. So you have to see all the consumer things that happen <laughs> over the years. Oh, joy. <laughs> oh yes. I, I, I've seen my fair share of cup, of cup holders coming broken. 
Absolutely. Well, let's get back to the open source because I think we wandered off because it's easy to do. Oh, it's so easy to do. <laughs> so before we get into talking about some of the actual software, it might be good for maybe our listeners who don't understand the difference between closed source and open source to just go through at a very high level. When we say open source, what do we actually mean? And one of the, I think, from my experience, and maybe you can correct me my, you know, from your experience, but when people hear open source, somehow they automatically assume that because it's open source, it's always going to be free. Yeah, and that's where it's setting those dividing lines. Being able to have access to the code is really important. It's been important for a long time. I think the security things that have gone on over the last few years have brought this to a fever pitch. You even look at the most recent news of things like, hey, the government's going to uh, here in the United States, and I believe um, uh, in numerous places as well, are banning some of these like Hikvision cameras because they can't trust the code that's in them. A lot of this comes down to and can be solved with open source because if you can't trust the code that builds something because you can't see it, you have a problem. The bigger thing, though, is I've always liked open source for a couple different reasons. One of them, being able to see the source code, being able to modify it yourself, being able to have some autonomy over the software you have. Now, this does not mean automatically just because you have the source, you'll know what to do with it or know how to compile it. But for those of us that are more advanced or want to do that, I think it's really important. And one of the other things that I think is often overlooked in open source is if the source code is just out there, and let's look at a company pretty famous for this is going to be Red Hat. If you're just giving away code and you're not trying to package your code as the product with a license attached to it, the only thing left, the, the value of Red Hat, the reason IBM bought them, the value is the people. And when the code isn't the value, it's the value of the contributions of the people. I always think that's just a better ecosystem that it creates. It also has allowed a lot of software to flourish because with the code, there is the, uh, we're just going to fork it people. And we've seen different things happen when people who are the stewards of an open source project. And, you know, it does have commercial backings. Uh, PF Sense is an easy one to point at. The NetGate company is the the seller of hardware that runs PFSense, but PFSense is open source and uh, can be compiled for other hardware. And it does, they actually ship it. They're the maintainers of it. And there was a point in time when there was a disagreement and then the forking happens. And when there's a fork of a product, well, that's because some group of people want to take the code and go their own direction. And that opportunity isn't given to you in the closed source world. Correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't um, Chrome's whole, the whole thing of Chrome launching, Chrome's Blink engine was a fork of WebKit? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't quote me on it. Someone can call us out. Oh, I'm sure someone <laughs> on Twitter will, yeah. in the comments on it. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. The, yeah, there is a there's a lot of that goes going on. But once again, these are those opportunities that come if if you can't have the if the project maintainers aren't good at it, someone will um, fork it. It it's one of those things though. I think that's really important because this gives you a better access. Because unfortunately, with some of these companies even going under, going out of business, um, this is uh, there's recent one, um, I can't remember the name of it, but this has happened with some of the cloud providers and things like that. Well, if you can't reconfigure the code on this device that was only available to talk to this cloud because you don't have the source code for it, well, now the device suddenly becomes as useless unless someone figures out a way to breathe new life into it, which is going to be hard if you don't have any source code for it. Uh, it just depends on how determined the reverse engineers are. So I think it just, it, Overall, creates a healthier ecosystem in technology. And the final one, of course, is supply chain attack. Kind of relates back to the security implications I talked about with the cameras. If we can't examine the code, 
there's no opportunity for us to understand if something else was embedded. Now, I will not say open source is automatically more secure. Code that's not looked at, code that's not poked at, code that's not tested, um, we don't know if it's secure. It's an unknown number at that point. But with it open source, at least, we have the opportunity to do it where we only reverse engineer. There's plenty of reverse engineering tools out there. And it's not like we can't find those bugs in, you know, things like Microsoft. We deal with bugs all the time because they're a popular product. They're closed source, but people still figure out where the uh, points are. They're just harder to see. They still exist. They're just harder to see those flaws. At least in open source, you can, you know, Possibly if a popular enough project out there, there's a community of people that are going to be examining it. We hope. <laughs> we hope. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know another popular. Now, this is when we talk about this, this is a really hard one for me to really praise because I am a big, big one password fan and one password for all its strengths and all the good things the team do. It is a closed source proprietary solution. Another closed source proprietary password manager. Now, I know you did a video on the last time they had a breach. LastPass, and I want to be really careful, they've had an infrastructure breach. Hi folks, Editor James here. And of course, this episode was recorded before we knew more about exactly what had been taken in the LastPass breach. So do take what we say here with, obviously, a grain of salt. And we put a link to Tom's video, as it happens, uh, explaining exactly what was taken and maybe what you should do if you are still, at this point, a LastPass user. It's not that you're... If you're using LastPass, your passwords are not suddenly vulnerable. This was not... Uh, from what I understand, this time there was... In fact, both times, there's been no user data stolen because it's properly... You know, it, it's it's end-to-end encrypted, as far as I'm aware, and it's not something that, right. that uh, the LastPass team have access to. But because it's not open source, there's no way to know for certain with some of this stuff. And whereas something like, well, Bitwarden being a great example of a completely open source password manager, you do, you can order. And I think, is it fair to say another advantage of open source is when you do get communities behind a project, people, because they love that product, are so keen to contribute and to find issues and help fix them. Yeah, I can't really think of, I'm not saying that the, the number is zero, but I can't think of many closed source projects that have large communities around them of contributors because you can't really be an easy contributor unless you directly work for the company or have to sign some NDA to help develop the product. Uh, but with open source, a lot of times you build a lot of community around uh, the builders of the source code. And this is actually something really interesting. So Jeffrey Snover, uh, if you don't know the name, he invented a little thing you might have heard of called PowerShell. Mm. And uh, we, me and him were talking once uh, at a Microsoft event because I actually did an interview with him. But one of the things that he had commented on, he's actually a huge open source advocate, by the way, uh, despite working in the belly of the beast, Microsoft themselves, PowerShell, he built it and built it as open source. But what he said, the big thing that Microsoft learned, their lesson learned from their, you know, moving towards some open source is they always, you know, to some extent, they like interacting with their clients, interacting with people who give suggestions. They said the big ha ha aha moment was oh, wow, they actually took the time to submit a code change, not just a suggestion. Like they can look at the code of some of these things, suggest the code chain, and we just have to approve a pull request at this point. They actually understood how this could be better. And instead of us having a team ask the question of, well, how do you implement that? These people can help write it. And then we just have to do QA on the code that was suggested, like, hey, if you modified it this way or added this feature, uh, he says that's in, you know, it's one of those things that took Microsoft a long time to understand, but this is the value in the community is when 
you're looking at something and you go, well, all right, we can look at this code and maybe I can see a better way to do it. And then we can just deal with the developers and go, Hey, this is the way to do it. Like this is the actual code change that would make this better. Uh, and you know, you get that more collaborative with it. And I think that's one of the reasons open source projects have, you know, especially recently, just, I, I feel like this last two years was on really large projects that I've got to see expand. Uh, like we have a couple of things to notice, you know, not just PF sense, but also like XCPNG, a large scale hypervisor system that's all open source. And you're like, wow, this is, this is a really, not just a small program, but a really extensive data center level product that's all open source. Yeah, and and that came from now. Correct me if I'm wrong, because that's based on the Zen hypervisor. Yes, based on the Zen hypervisor. We could spend an entire episode just talking about what Citrix did wrong. Yes, and I'm sure, and you have yes done that sort of episode. But this is now completely open source, community fully community backed, and I know I think correct me if I'm wrong. You use it extensively for your virtualization needs. Yes. Uh, we use it uh, essentially internally, and uh, we do a lot of consulting with it. So we've helped a lot of clients move this and set this up in data centers. Uh, we work closely with the company that's uh, behind the programming and automation of a lot of stuff on this called Vates. Uh, so they're founders of it. And I believe if you look, I think I'm going to see if this is posted because um, I think it was a talk at Black Hat. Citrix, it may have been Citrix or I'm sure who put it together or someone related to the Citrix project originally uh, was how to ruin a community. And that was their title. And it was about the debacle. Oh, wow. Uh, and this was very recent. It was about the debacle. So Citrix was the steward, if you will, maintaining a lot of the the Zen hypervisor things. And I don't know. They just made a lot of poor choices with it that really uh, destroyed a strong community. And this is where opportunity was seized for the fork of it that XCPNG is because Citrix always had this weird mix of some of it's open, some of it's proprietary. So it was open source in, in its core because the Zen hypervisor, the core component of this uh, is always has been open source. It's been around a long time. It's part of the Linux foundation project. So it's, that is solidified, but that's just a hypervisor. That's not tooling that goes around it. So the tooling that was built around that hypervisor, some of it was open source, some of it wasn't. And Citrix kind of had a weird mix and a really poor way of doing it. The the, the too long didn't uh, read all the drama was there was a point release that went from, I think it was like 7.1 to 7.2. And in the point release, they added more proprietary things that removed all the free features that you had. Oh. And once you upgraded, they had no regression path. So people said, oh, look, a new version. No one that read the details, because what? We were going from 7.1 to 7.2. It's not a major release. It's a point release. And then all of a sudden, you're like, hey, I just lost the ability to migrate VMs and all these other features. You're like, oh, yeah, you got to buy a license for that now. Wait a minute. This was a license update, not a feature update. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So how to ruin a community. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and we've got, you know, I've, I've taught, we've got, you know, a talking point for a little bit later about some of the, um, you know, the, again, costly solutions that have be- um, open source alternatives. But before we do that, you know, when we talk about a business scenario, and I know from experience of working in, you know, customer support and technical support, that companies are very, very fond of the traditional closed source solutions, like you know uh, the last what? In fact, I uh, <laughs> I did a migration from Google to uh, G Suite to Office three six five in my last role. I was project lead on that because they wanted to move everything to Microsoft. Fine, couldn't convince them to go open source, but hey, that's okay. But 
what is it do you think about these club these you know the big boys the microsofts and the googles that are so attractive to to businesses is it a fear of open source or is it something else is it go with what you know well, businesses are all about solving the problems for a need they have, whatever that need might be. And so salespeople uh, find ways in those places so they can get in there. So these salespeople are going to be well-funded from companies like Microsoft. Businesses are also about risk mitigation, what should be in-house, what shouldn't be, or what is a unknown. And one of the unknowns, and thanks to Microsoft and their fear campaigns, was, well, what is this open source? Because Microsoft threatened for a long time to sue people over, Samba was one of the examples. And the litigious nature of Microsoft and constantly spreading that goes, well, I don't know if I want to go with these other solutions, because what if that legal team and you know, Microsoft, uh, uh, Bill Gates, you got to remember, guy was at Harvard, not for programming. He's Harvard Law. <laughs> and, and the litigious nature of Microsoft was a machine and it was a one to be reckoned with. So any of fear that they threw into the market combined with, you know, well-funded company, lots of money and lots of resources to have enough sales staff and sales engineers and everyone saying how, ooh, the big, bad, scary open source. And I don't know, man, lawyers might pull the rug out from Monday if you went with that other solution. So there was a lot of combinations of misinformation and money to be made. And businesses, they're not in the open source business. They're in the, you know, we're moving freight business, for example. We're building cars here in Detroit business. They're less concerned about software. Like, give me the best solution. I don't want risk. I don't want to have something that disrupts us from making cars. So the people at the top of the business, we're going to make decisions based on those parameters. Open source GPL licenses, they don't know what those are. And that's something your lawyers will think about. Like they're not, they're like, what keeps me out of legal hot water? And uh, this guy I golf with that bought me a nice steak dinner says buying Microsoft keeps me out of hot water. <laughs> so and I kind of like the guy, you know, he bought me a good round of golf and a, and a nice steak. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Open source is not easy to get uh, well-funded salespeople for. <laughs> and more recently, that's changed. But you're usually got some uh, nerd like myself uh, who I've always called myself just a longtime open source advocate. I'm just the the person that in their mind has a tinfoil hat screaming something about some open source thing. But I, I didn't have the budget to take them out to golf. <laughs> that's that's the uh, Tom's opinion of why there's so much proprietary software and still remains in a lot of the commercial enterprises. Uh, no, I, I think you're right. It's again, money talks, doesn't it? You know, if someone's taking the... Yeah. Because it's not... You know, it's not the grunts on the ground. It's not the, you know, let, I'll take you as an example because you've worked in that field. It's not the Toms. It's not the, the Jameses who are actually admin in the systems who make the purchase decisions. It's the IT directors who are getting taken out for those golf dinners. Yep. Your average IT systems admin is not getting taken out for a steak dinner. They might have to settle for a McDonald's. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. They, we, we don't get, uh, wined and dined very much by salespeople. <laughs> we're, we're just subjected to whatever the salespeople sold the people above us. <laughs> Depend, you know, it's also who's in charge. My position from a long time ago versus my position today. I've grown up at open source. The people in charge did not. So you, you think about now, you know, right now in my forties, your forties, you may be in a management position when you're starting out in your twenties. Unless you're really lucky, you don't land that management position at 22 years old. Uh, so the open source was very new, very 
you know, interesting and not well understood by people, maybe 10 or 12 years, uh, veteran techs in there. They just hadn't really dealt with it as much. So that's also part of the driving force. Now that the us ragtag group of open source crazy people are taking positions of power in our forties and the other people retired, uh, we get to have more say and it brings more open source into things. <laughs> it's interesting because I was talking to a friend, friend of the show earlier, um, uh, Jack, who's, who's been on the show talking about, you know, is tech too complicated? He, and he works in it. I said, you know, why, why do you think, you know, I, I think PFSense is wonderful. I've, you know, I've deployed a couple of NetGate boxes and I, for, for testing purposes for a while, my home was run off a spared company desktop PC we had, I put a decent nick into it and just ran that for a while. I wish I could still, on a completely very, very random, not random tangent, but on a NetGate tangent, I really wish they had a slightly cheaper home box for me 1100. Yeah, I, I will completely agree with you. There's so many nuances to it. I think I've commented here and there on it. Uh, if you dive into some of the supply chain problems they have, being a smaller vendor is what really hurts them. They just can't manufacture things at the same scale uh, that these other companies can. And they do well, but it's still hard to really drive those costs down to where they would like them to be. Because um, you know, to, to them... You know, there's that balance to keep there. They would love to have less expensive boxes and sell more of them because that means more PF cents in a marketplace and more opportunity for them. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges in building the hardware. I've looked a little bit and talked to some people who built hardware and I'm like, I thought software was hard. Whoa, you mean this? And they got caught with the last couple of years dealing with supply chain issues that really cranked the prices up um, and brought them into new levels of challenge mode. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, look, the 1100 is for what it, for its price, it is a decent little machine. Yeah. But again, for, for home users, it's just a little bit out of budget. And I think, unfortunately, this energy cost crisis we're having at the moment, it becomes a little bit unfeasible to take an old junker PC, which aren't very power efficient. Right. And, and, and run them as a PF sense box. I mean, you know, I'm here, I'm on a, I got a very good deal on edge router, light free which was a, a you know, like a pawn shop and we had no idea what it was and it was 25 pounds i'll have that thank you yeah i'll, I'll take that <laughs> anyway well, one question i do want to ask you because you know obviously microsoft i see a lot of businesses you know my dad's form when before my dad retired his former company moved away from an on-premise exchange and you know network shares and uh perpetually licensed office to Google G Suite or what, whatever it was called at the time, Google Apps, whatever Google called it this week. <laughs> what name is it now? Yes. <laughs> now, I, as people will know, I'm a bit of a privacy nerd and Google are not my favorite people. Right. Does G, uh, and G Suite is, it's not open source. It is proprietary software. It's very proprietary online stuff. Yeah. Does it, does that sort of Google's reputation for privacy, does that, carry over into a business world or do they just want ease of use i guess i'm I'm wording this badly but i think you, you probably know what i'm trying to get get at yeah it it's a hard call but i don't think at all that google would want to violate it because it's a reasonable lucrative business for them uh to sell hosted services to sell the whole g suite suite of tools to have everything online any 
you know, I have a lot of information there. We are a G Suite user as a business. So me, all my staff use this. Um, in, you're probably going, why not Nextcloud or why not bring your own mail server? And I'm a longtime mail server admin. I just at one point in time said I had enough of trying to get an email out to someone and I said, I just not my war to fight anymore. Getting emails out is really important if we have to send a quote out. So I surrendered to using everything in Google. But I think Google's not going to let someone else in, you know, or look through my documents, my employee manuals and things that aren't really in public view uh, or quotes we have that we may have stored within Google. I don't worry too much about that. I think they're really good at keeping your data safe. Now, whether or not they use that data to help provide you services. For example, the love-hate relationship I have with Google Photos. What I would like to do is never use it, but they keep tempting me. So I'm careful always what I put in there. It's anything that anything I put in there, not that I want it public, but it's less worrisome. If there's some private photo thing I do, I'm just not going to do that on any public cloud server. But the ability for me to type in something into the, like the Google photo search and be able to instantly index and find something, you type in flower, you can do the facial recognition and index. I have 90,000 photos in my Google photos right now. And it's amazing how well it indexes everything. I absolutely am this like that's the tempting things i for privacy reasons i have uh local stored photos that never go to the cloud and the downside is i mean i organize them and put metadata and tags on them so i can find them later but boy there's no comparison to how good google is at it i I know the ai stuff that can work locally is getting better it's just not at google's level yet Um, there are some projects that are getting better at it so kind of the long answer of where i fall in google privacy i'm a user of it I think they keep the data to themselves, (laughs) Um, but you're right. It is scary because they're, if they have the data, the potential for someone else to have the data is there. And we know they work with, and they're very public about their work with law enforcement, which can also, uh, there's been incidents that have caused some problems sometimes. So uh, you have to kind of weigh those risks. I, I always preach awareness. I always like tell people, these are the things that I know to be true. So these are the things you should consider. I'm not the person to tell you yes or no. Decide your own risk tolerance for those things. And, and, and the same, of course, goes when you're using Microsoft 365. Microsoft can use that data mm-hmm. if they want to. And, you know, for companies oh, yeah, are very heavy. You know, again, free, you talk, I love that you brought up email because absolutely, you, these days, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is mostly because of the spam problems. Yeah. Because of the difficulty in verifying that your mail server is, is, you know, safe, that it's not being used by attackers. It's why we, for example, I'll be, well, we, everyone knows we do because we had Helen Horseman Allen from Fastmail on the show. We use Fastmail for the, for a podcast and I love Fastmail, but we would never dream of running our own email server. Now, I, again, don't quote me on this, but I, I remember looking at Nextcloud as sort of a thing to play with here thinking, Oh, wonderful. I can run my own mail server. Well, they no longer offer a mail server as part of Nextcloud for that exact reason because it's just too complicated. And Google, again, as, as Tom said, although there are concerns about what they have about you, maybe more so when we talk personal accounts like Gmail and your YouTube right. accounts, right? And as, as Tom said with Google Photos, there's, there's some implications, but they do search. Although, I will say this, they are rubbish at indexing podcast feeds. We relaunched, <laughs> yes. we literally yeah. launched, launched the, the new site last week. Um, oh, nearly two weeks ago now, we launched a new site. They still haven't properly switched over the feeds. 
Yeah, there are, there are things. They have some shortcomings. <laughs> yes. So, folks, don't use Google Podcasts. There are far better podcast apps out there. Pocket Cast, I'm sure there are lots of great open source ones that um, I should really know about as a podcaster, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. Or just pull, you know, I think a lot of the open source people I know, they just pull them through RSS feeds. So make sure that you, you know, your RSS feeds up to date. Cause that's. <laughs> oh, it is. Absolutely. You know, we, we made a big deal about the RSS feeds. We have three different feeds for one combined feed and then one for each show that we uh, we produce so we we tried to be a bit flexible there yep so moving on to so we talked about the the bad guys as it were and i i don't think that at, at the core microsoft and google are actually that bad are bad guys but right they are close source they are proprietary and microsoft are these days are becoming this is not steve Ballmer's microsoft anymore they are not no like windows subsystem for linux yeah that was it's interesting and um same time I was talking to Jeffrey Snover, because this was actually at a Microsoft conference when I was doing all this, because it was the launch of Windows Subsystem for Linux. It was them getting into open source. This is like in 2017. Uh, and Jeffrey Snover said, yeah. Now, what people don't know, there's a there's a um, old podcast that we used to do, and it's going to be episode 256, How Microsoft Got Git. And uh, that is on the Sunday Morning Linux Review podcast I did. And we interviewed the people who helped bring GitHub uh, into there. Now, what people don't know, before Steve Ballmer left, he set the wheels in motion for more open source inside of Microsoft. Oh. And I just think that's fascinating that he did that. Now, he did this quietly, never apologized for calling open source cancer or anything like that, but he did quietly sign off on some of these things before he left and kind of set up Nadella to help carry it forward. But it's not talked about much. And I mean, the guy never you know, formally apologized for uh, his behavior on things. So that's one of those things like he, I wish he would have done that because it would have been, uh, would have been better if he actually did that part of it. It, it would have been a nice way to hail that that transition, say, look, I got it wrong. You know, because for me, that's a big part of leadership, admitting when you make mistakes, right? I mean, yeah. you know, we we talked about XCPNG earlier and PFSense, but when we think about traditionally proprietary and closed source solutions, you know, again, the same friend I was talking to, oh, you know, if I'm going to go for a firewall, I'm going to go for something by Juniper or by uh, Cisco because they are a known quantity. Yes. Now, what? where have we seen big growth in open source solutions for things that have been traditionally dominated? I mean, you know, we've already talked about virtualization with XCPNG. We've talked about firewalls with PFSense. You know, what about things like collaboration suites and Office? Because, uh, you know, I'm thinking um, originally open Office, um, though, correct, I don't quite, I'm not quite familiar with this, but I know there's been some, some controversy around Apache Apache's stewardship of uh, OpenOffice, hence why LibreOffice exists. Yeah, well, wasn't it Oracle for a little while that was also part of it? That that's what forked people over to the LibreOffice side. I believe it was the Oracle's involvement in that. Oracle's uh, notoriously not not necessarily a friendly company. They're they're also a very litigious group of people. I think they learned from Microsoft. So. <laughs> they did. Didn't they? Um, don't don't Oracle own MySQL these days? Um, well, that's why we have MariaDB. I was about to say that's why we've got. So again, you know, again, for those who aren't aware, what we're speaking about when we talk about MySQL and MariaDB, we're talking about database uh, management systems. So obviously, the closed source stuff. And I'm going to get this wrong. If I, I think SQL Server is still. Microsoft SQL Server is still very much closed source. 
Microsoft SQL Server is closed source, yes. And uh, that's what a lot of businesses will use, or Oracle, or, well, yeah, those are the ones that I would say, you know, have a big names in, in DBMS. But then, you know, yeah, you've got now a Fort MariaDB. You have, I think, Post, Postgres is, is Postgres open source? Yeah, Postgres is open source. Awesome. But yeah, what about things like if you don't want to roll, throw your dice in with Microsoft or, or Google, but you do want your team to be able to collaborate together, you know, what are the options there? Because it seems like that's going to be incredibly challenging, but I, I know it's not. I know people do it. Yeah. So right now you have, op- um, what is that tool called? It's part of the tool stack that comes with NextCloud. It's a collaboration suite that you load within there. Uh, and that gives you very similar real-time document management, real-time ability to have multiple people editing on the same document, very in a, much in a similar way of Google Drive. So those tools are slowly maturing and allowing another option more than just your, you know, Microsoft 365 or G Suite options. So I, I really like seeing that, uh, the development in it. NextCloud has come a long way uh, from kind of like we're going to do these basic features to becoming a full office suite. I think, you know, not having mail in there isn't necessarily a hindrance. It's keeping them focused on some of their core functionality of having a lot of integrations with, for the office side, like that way you don't say we're an office plus mail suite. We're an office suite. Uh, it's one of those things kind of like we had said, handling mail is just a bit challenging uh, right now. It doesn't mean they don't have plugins where they can do some interoperability with it, but yeah, it's it, it can be um, a daunting task setting up your own mail server uh, at times. <laughs> and, and I guess all of this comes from a, in a lot of cases, now I know there are still businesses that by law and due to regulatory reasons still have to have, have on-premise solutions. Yes. But it, I think it's fair to say that a lot of stuff, uh, the desire is to move it to the cloud. Now, ultimately, the cloud is just someone else's computer. Right. But to be able to have it not on your, not in your own, you know, that data center at the bottom where Ross and, uh, Ross and, Ross and Roy? Roy and Moss. Wow. <laughs> Roy and Moss. Roy- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Ross and Rachel then. Um, where, um, yeah, Roy and Moss live. That's not. I think it's fair to say in a lot in a lot of businesses that's becoming less and less the IT department. It's more cloud. Or am I completely wrong? No, in a small business market, it's not reasonable for them to try to run a lot of on-prem things. It's not practical for if you have a, a 10 user office, it's not likely you'll even have any real on-prem servers. I mean, there's some Synologies out there, which by the way, Synology is an interesting solution that's kind of a mix of some open source and mostly a lot of closed source uh, box. So they are still have some opportunities for on-prem, but Microsoft's really making it kind of a little bit pricey. Uh, for the small businesses, it becomes a, a big cost of sort of really pushing them into these subscription models in the cloud. But honestly, with the way things work today for a small business, it's probably their better bet for them. Uh, it allows them for easier expansion. If they add a user, they don't have to buy another server. If they exceed that server's capacity, they can elastically, you know, say, hey, just add another license fee to the cloud and have all these things spun up. It's also a little bit 
well, usually easier. The one of the terms we use when we're uh, talking to businesses because we do sometimes on prem, we do sometimes in cloud is the term capex opex, and it's capital expenditure which you have a lot more of upfront when you're uh, doing on prem or operating expenditure, and you just tag it to the price of an employee. So I pay an employee X, it's X plus the license fees that are recurring. So how do I predict? you know, how much it's going to cost me to hire five more people. Well, it's that license. It's whatever I have to pay them in salary plus five times that license fee for those employees. When you're doing it as a CapEx, when your capital expenditure is like, oh, well, uh, we can support 10 users, but 15 users, we got to buy a new server. How much is it? Oh, it's going to be another 15 grand. I need a lead time and I'll do this. It's going to be a project to swap out the server. Those are some of the different problems you're into. So for small businesses, it's not as practical. On the large companies, the cloud bill has came and they're not happy. <laughs> so we're, we actually helped uh, in some of the storage projects we do for, with some very large companies. They're bringing stuff in-house because they're going, the cloud is uh, really expensive. I mean, some of them are going like, we're, we're spending $6 million in fees in the cloud every year. Wow. <laughs> we think we can build uh, a data center, even a small one, and cut in half some of these costs. And so when they look at it, because they're looking at the long-term play here going, what if we built one of these? What if we built two data centers for redundancy? Will that still cost us six million recurring? Which, by the way, it's six million today. We know it's going to be seven million tomorrow, eight million the day after that, et cetera, et cetera. The cloud, despite compute and storage getting cheaper, the cloud keeps going the other way. <laughs> so, um, some companies are looking at those things and saying, okay, this is, this is something we want to do. Uh, on-prem. Uh, and this is where things like XCP and G come into play. We had a lot more companies uh, build this. So it kind of it's going to vary from company to company. We, we work with a lot of movie studios, for example, and no one has convinced them to stick it in the cloud because you know how big movies are now? Uh, you know, you could stick it in the cloud, but then the movie companies want the latest, greatest, fanciest cameras. When you start shooting in 8K, the files are bigger. So I could have stored easy store 10, 1080 footage in the cloud, but we're shooting 8K raw over here. <laughs> and, and each movie's like two petabytes. Now what? <laughs> it, it, it's why, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know about yourself, but production companies like, you know, I, I take everybody's, I quote, quote unquote, favorite tech YouTuber, Linus Media Group. Yeah. And you see the sort of crazy NAS builds. Now, of course, I'm sure some of us are for show, but some of that stuff is just mad. Yeah. I guess uh, to expand on that, is it fair that it, when we talk on-prem, the on-prem is probably more along the storage and virtualization yes. than the email and the productivity side. That's probably mostly cloud. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to. It's uh, one of the companies that we built some large storage servers for. They do their their engineering, and there's just a massive amount of data they collect to design their products. Uh, and I'll, I'll give a hint to the industry they're in. They crash their products and have to gather information on those. Uh, and when you crash a bunch of your products together, it creates a lot of data that needs to be analyzed. So storing that in the cloud is kind of an impractical thing just because of the volume of data. Each crash has X. They know how many they're going to crash. They know how much data they need. Their data run rate is depending on crashes. <laughs> so... But once you start calculating that, you're like, yeah, this is probably not the best because they do a bunch of analysis on uh, these high intensity data sets that they collected and uh, they're doing that local. And, you know, they have a, a compute setup that just 
once all the data is loaded on the storage, they start calculating and crunching it. And that's how they get their intelligence out of it and derive their uh, changes they may want to make. So it's kind of interesting to see the machine in action. But that's once again, that's all been done on prem. They were pitched onto it in the cloud. The cost was substantially more like they're like this. This would be as expensive as things are in your company, when you're crashing things that are expensive in general, you think about what it costs uh, to build one of the things they crash. You're like, yeah, you're thinking about a lot of money and you're going even in a cloud that would actually be too much. <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting problem to have. Now we, we, we sort of have gone around a lot of this and I'm, I'm aware of it because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but we talked earlier a little bit about the security benefits of open source because people can see the core code. They can audit the code. Yes. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Some, I, I think, for example, one password has been security audited. Yeah, but that isn't something that anyone could go and do. No, they have chosen it, uh, and you have to then trust that they've chosen a valid partner. You know, I, I, and by the way, I'm not at all casting any doubts on one password. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, but you know, again, a bit more than because it can be publicly audited, it it can have that more confidence. Are there any? You know, because when we think closed source, we think, oh, okay, well, only they know the code. Therefore, and we've seen so many problems. You know, I think back to the WannaCry vulnerabilities. That part of the problem there was really, let's let's be honest, people people were not patching their on-prem infrastructure, their exchange service, everything like that. I mean, the NHS here in this country got massively stung. I, you know, I remember speaking to um to a team to an IT systems admin and the big NHS trust like, yeah. Our email was offline for three months. We had to use alternative solutions because of WannaCry. But are there any negatives security-wise to open source software? Is there anything about it being open source that potentially gives a, a, a false sense of security or actually brings in security risks? You know, and we've had this debate before because there's there's been a while, um, a long time coming that I hope we get to this feature. Uh, it's called SBOM, sometimes just called SBOM for short. So it's software bill of materials. And this is something not directly about open source, it's about supply chain in general. So we understand what something was built with. We understand all the components and libraries that went into this, especially when you talk about how a project anymore isn't just someone wrote it. They have a lot of external dependencies. One of the more famous ones just about a year ago was Log4J. And obviously, you know, the, the, race was on because we found out how bad the flaw was, but the race was on to go, does my software use Log4J? That's a real question. And without a software bill of materials, we just don't know. But the same argument why companies don't want to do software bill of materials and why they don't want to do open source is kind of the same when it comes to security. They're going, but if someone could see it, they would be able to, you know, quickly derive that we used it and then leverage that information against us. But the reality is that really isn't how it's played out in the market. That's the argument for it. But the way we've watched it play out in the market, look at ESXi. ESXi has Log4J. They did release patches. People didn't patch because patching your virtualization infrastructure is uh, risky. It is, wow, what if this breaks? This takes down not just a server, but all the servers that are on here. So there's obviously a lot of these out there that haven't been patched have led to a lot of the big security breaches we seen in 2022 was related to ESXi. Just 
nature of it. If it's exposed, it's a big company usually using it, and therefore it's a big <laughs> incident when it happens. But here they are. People figured out that it was built with it without a software bill materials, without it being open source. And you, the list goes on and on for people uh, figuring a lot of these things out. There was a recent vulnerability posted with a tool called R1Soft. It's a backup software that had a Java library. Now, this was not known, but someone figured it all out that it was based on that. And it was, you know, people found ways to turn this vulnerability into a full exploit on a public facing web interface that runs a backup. Uh, and what are you backing up? Usually things that are critical in businesses, because this is a licensed paid proprietary software. But one engineer figured out that this library existed within there. So even without the code being available, people are still figuring it out. And I think I said earlier, Microsoft, not open source, but the code's there and we're watching, you know, the exchange problems, most famously uh, uh, right here, what was it like a week ago or a week out from the Rackspace incident related to exchange, related to people finding flaws in exchange uh, that allowed that to be the pivot and entry point. And once again, we don't have any source code for this. People poked away at it until they found it. Now, could they have found it sooner with the source code? Maybe that argument, I guess, could be made, but it's a weak one. If you have a vulnerability in your code, please fix it. <laughs> that's that's it, Hiding it is only a matter of time. It's just, it's a matter of uh, before you get hit. It's just a when question at that point before someone may take an interest in it and poke at it. <laughs> Absolutely. And you've done some great content. I think you did a, a series on, I don't know if it's on your YouTube channel, but certainly, and I think it was, um, about how, how they were hacked. Yeah, we want to get back to doing some of that content. Um, I spent a lot of time hanging out with my security friends. And the nice thing is YouTube has come around a long way. We kept that as a separate channel because YouTube can be harsh on channels and just randomly ban them for talking about security. It's a misunderstanding because, granted, the reason YouTube did this, there was a lot of nefarious channels that legitimately were trying to hack people, and they would have bad information on them. So YouTube couldn't tell the difference with their automated system, you know, people are worried AI is going to take over, but it, it actually doesn't even understand the nuance of people, of who's putting out a content that's actually malicious aimed at people to get them to do something versus content of uh, me and a couple of friends just advising people and educating people about security. And this happened with a lot of different channels where they talk security. So they, the YouTube's come a long way. They've gotten better at it. Now we've got some really popular channels. Uh, my friend John Hammond just crossed half a million subscribers and he dives into a lot of, you know, reverse engineering, how to get shell on things. Uh, he does a lot of security training and so do many other uh, great people out there in tech, which is awesome. It is, you know, I'd say, you know, for, I think it's fair to say, you know, when I look at tech YouTubers, uh, and there's one final thing I want to talk about before we wrap up, but when I look at tech YouTubers, I look at yourself, I look at Chris Sherwood, Learn Linux TV, yep. and I, I, I'd i say mutual acquaintance or maybe maybe daring to say friend, uh, Cody from Mac Telecom Networks. Yeah, Cody, Jeff Gearling, there's there's a lot of us. Techno Tim, Jeff from Craft Computing. Uh, we actually all chat. We all have a big, giant group chat with all of us in there. So when people say, do you guys collaborate? I'm like, yeah, we message on things and chat about stuff all the time. Uh, one of the things that we all have in common is uh, we're all practitioners. We're not just people who are making some YouTube videos. We all work in the industry in different capacities um, with our disciplines. So I think that's what you're seeing a lot of is 
creators who are also working in the industry. This is something that, you know, Sands Institute is regarded as a really uh, high esteem place to get training, but a requirement meant not everyone realizes is they have to be practitioners in the thing they're training on. So this is what gets you a really good teacher, um, someone who's experienced in a field, constantly still doing it. And when technology being fast moving, we're not teaching history. Well, some of, some of us tech people are teaching history. I, I am, that's my guilty pleasure is watching, um, old hardware videos and people take apart old Commodore 64s. But uh, are you an LDR? Are you an LDR fan, man? Yeah. <laughs> so you, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, that's, yeah, those are just great. That up on my, uh, people see the squad shop, that up on the wall is the, is a, the logic board from a Dell Mini 9, one of those awful, netbooks <laughs> but it was the first thing i ever did a hackintosh on so that was i'm, I'm ah. on a proper mac now but you know I, i'm with you i have i love keeping up to date with stuff you know my because i'm not working at the moment for various reasons you know i don't have a budget to have a proper unified deployment here i'm cobbling together stuff but i'm learning so much about vlans again you know one of my guilty pleasures is spending far too much time watching uh neil rmc retros videos yeah uh, and i do plan a trip to the cave very soon look you know neil's furnished us with enough guests neil's been on the show and i love that now before we wrap up there's one thing i wanted to talk about because you you're to blame for me trying something on an old compute so when my 27 inch imac stopped being supported my old one my old 2011 i thought well what should i do should i throw it away no let's try linux on this thing and it was tom's videos that got me to try pop os now i i do keep thinking to myself you know there's so many older windows laptops and desktops that let's be honest do not run well under modern versions of windows linux can be i just want to be really careful how i say this because i don't can be overwhelming if you've not used it before you're in a very different environment what what's this thing called pop os so this is the interesting and also challenging part of linux it's hard to just recommend linux because people get very passionate about whatever their distribution is and what does that even mean that's often the first part that loses people when they start going what do you mean different distributions am i running linux or windows it's but people look at it because you don't choose windows outside of the version number whatever current is supported by microsoft um that's all you choose with linux there's so much customization it can be very overwhelming and not everyone stops to think about having too many choices can be a real tax on someone because now they start researching it especially if they're analytical they'll go further and want to research it almost too much. And then you're like, well, should I run GNOME or KDE or Ubuntu or Debian or Red Hat and all those choices? So to simplify things, Ubuntu is one of the more popular, easier to use distributions. I really like it. If someone's starting out, I just say, hey, start with Ubuntu. But I changed that not that long ago to Pop! OS. And my reasoning is Pop! OS does a really nice job of packaging it to make it easy to use for uh, people who are new. And also at the same time, having good documentation for things like, hey, what are these extra keyboard shortcuts? And it 
adds a little bit of polish to the way things look. It's less rough than Ubuntu, and they have what they call the Pop Shop, an app store, if you will. And the app store also makes it easy for first-time Linux users to go, hey, I can load this. I don't know where the app is for this. Like, how do I get to the command line and install it? But, oh, I can just go to the Pop Shop system. I can click on the applications I want. There's a whole game section. You can just start loading it. Uh, it works well with Steam. Yeah. So if you're into Steam games, there's many of them are supported on Linux, and they actually can load Steam right out of the uh, Pop OS. So, it, you know, if you can't play your games on it, that is sometimes one of those first things that stops people from even wanting to use it. Because if you set up a dual boot, and you, but you know, the thing you want to do the most, you have to do boot into Windows for, you won't reboot it back into Linux. Because why would you? You've, you're in the environment you are. You're done playing a game. You're just going to open a browser and keep using the computer how you use it. Uh, so having all these extras in there is really, really handy to give you a good experience on there. Now, one warning about people who want to start with old computers, they sometimes have the problem of going, well, Linux didn't perform the way I wanted or things like that. Great for testing an old computer, but the reality is you still need some performance. Just because it's lighter weight and doesn't have all the overhead of Windows doesn't mean it can run the game at the frame rate you want. There's there's only so much magic there that can happen. <laughs> Putting Linux on it won't necessarily get you better frame rates on the game you want to play. <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. And for, for gaming on Linux, of course, I'm going to recommend this. Mm, absolutely. I think that's ushering in more gaming on Linux as well. Oh, so. gosh, yeah. I mean, so this is, uh, for those of you who don't know, me and Jay both now have Steam Decks. Being really honest, folks, the reason we got them, um, they, you know, they obviously were an expense, but the reason we got them was because it's going to make our streaming stuff so much easier. We can just capture that device and just stream but yeah um you know we're seeing more and more stuff valve have put a lot of work into making gaming on linux if as tom said you've got the appropriate hardware for the frame rates yeah. but i think also you know once the device stops getting security updates maybe you've got an older machine that can't for whatever reason run windows 10 or you know with my imac can't run the latest version of mac os Pop OS, actually, it means that you are still getting security updates because my golden rule, and I don't know whether or not you'll agree with me on this, I hope you will, is that once a device stops receiving security updates from its original manufacturer or the OS vendor, it is time to stop using it. Yes, I will agree with that. That is a real like hard stop there. If you can't get security updates for this and you plan to use it on the internet, because you know, I'm not saying don't use your Commodore 64. They don't have security updates for them. But if you plan to put it online, <laughs> it's uh, really a consideration. <laughs> uh, that's a ve- I like that caveat. If you plan to use it on the internet, it's, it's one of the thing, pet peeves of mine is no, stop using my iPhone 4S to do your online banking. Please stop doing that. Right. Well, we have uh, we have an internal joke. Uh, being in the Detroit area, we have a lot of manufacturing. And manufacturing, everything's just a tool to them. And some of their tools, actually many of their tools, because some of these businesses, we have a few clients that have been in business since the 1920s. You know, it's like third generation running these companies. Uh, and they don't replace tooling that works. And one of them is running OS2. Now, these OS2 machines are not online. And it's just funny to me to see them running, but they, they build these uh, cabinets with them. Like, they build the faces and they all the milling for the cabinets. It works beautifully. And as the machine, it's amazing. The machines still work fine, uh, but we just clone hard drives as needed. Because if uh, one of them dies, it's usually a hard drive from that age, but you can find them on eBay. Uh, we have another one that runs Windows 95. It's offline, of course, uh, but it's 
it's actually laser etching serial numbers into parts. That's all it does. As the parts come down, it runs a like half million dollar. It's all part of this. It's part of a machine. It's not just one component, but the windows 95, that's all it does. And the only thing you do is go up to terminal. If there's any, any problem and like start it, whatever they look at the device, what was the last serial number? Oh, this one ended at this one. So start the next one at this one. If the computer gets reset and they punch it and it, as them come through this laser beam, just shoots a serial number across there. But we joke about those because we call it security through antiquity. A lot of it's just too old to get hacked. Yeah. <laughs> but most, it, it's all offline. It's a good point, <laughs> and, and you know, because the reality is, it would cost far more to redevelop the software for a modern platform, yes, than it would to just keep uh, cloning drives. And you know, it's the reason we still have ISA board computers today. I think yeah. LGR found something, but you know, still does ISA because it's a requirement for industry for that type of industry. Anyway, I love Pop OS. I. If it was up to me, I would go around with a flash drive and start just randomly installing it on all my friends' computers. Um, I think that would go down badly. But I mean, look, I you know I had a um, my dad's my dad's old work laptop. They let him keep. He said, "Here, you can have this." So I put Pop OS on it, and it was a great little Linux machine for you know because you know I did do a little bit of sort of independent tech help for old people. One of the best things I have is a little USB free to SATA adapter. Okay, yeah. So if a hard drive dies, I can easily, I think I've got, uh, I've got that and I've got a drive dock, so I can easily clone drives by take, you know, and, and get them up and running again from a Linux machine. It's, it's great. But anyway, Tom, thank you so much for your time. So where can people find you and your content if people want to find a little bit more about yourself? It all starts at my website, lawrencesystems.com. That way, wherever, Whenever in the future you're listening to this, wherever I may be, there's always links at the bottom for everything, but obviously on YouTube, currently Mastodon and Twitter. I still post on those places and LinkedIn, as we mentioned at the beginning. So I'm pretty easily found, but if you start at my website, all my social links are always uh, down there at lawrencesystems.com. That way you can start there and figure out which platform you'd like to uh, engage with me or just watch my content. So. And you've got some great merch as well. And of course, I'm assuming you, if people want to hire you and are in the US, they can reach yeah. you out because you don't do international oh, stuff. No, do you? Oh, no, we do. We oh, okay. work internationally. We've got companies in Australia, Israel, Sweden, all over the place. So, matter of fact, much, so much of our open source consulting is over in Europe, especially with XCPNG. Especially, so with the exchange rates of VMware, VMware raised all their prices uh, and Combine that with the exchange rate versus the euro, and they substantially have gone up, is my understanding, to the point of a few people said it's just untenable for them to pay those fees to them. So uh, we've helped uh, European companies do migrations and did consulting on that. Oh, wow. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So international audience. There you go. I'm getting confused. It's Cody who can – no, even Cody does some – there's one YouTuber who only does – Oh, it's Chris. It's Chris Sherwood who Chris. Chris doesn't. Yeah, Chris doesn't. Chris is very strict. He only does U.S. stuff, which is understandable given what he does. Absolutely, I, I get that. He does a lot of phone support and the phone laws. He doesn't necessarily want to be involved in for the other places. We don't do. We don't do free PBX support. So um, it's interesting you talk about you because one of the things, as I said, spot with this whole you know European countries starting to say no open source only for government and education. Yep. It's it's a huge opportunity. It is, you know, one final thought for me on the whole open source thing. It has always bothered me that education in IT has always been very, very heavily focused on Microsoft Office and Windows. Yes. And so much of that has been because Microsoft would always give the schools so much for free. Yeah. It was so embedded 
in the school systems. They actually are, have been losing it because Google gives away a lot for free. So now the schools are, have more and more people using Google, but yeah, a lot of that is, um, the way the money, money thing works, as we said earlier. <laughs> yeah. And of course, more and more schools are going Chromebooks because Chromebooks are cheap enough. For, if a kid drops a Chromebook, meh, doesn't really matter. And they're easy to manage from an IT perspective. Uh, handing a bunch of kids a, a bunch of Windows laptops is, it's hard enough dealing with end users, let alone kids. <laughs> the, the limited ability of the Chromebook itself is what makes it helpful. You're like, you can't do much with it. And the IT admin goes, that's the point. We're handing these to, <laughs> you know how, how rough high school students are on anything? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I'm going up to my parents uh, next week and I'm taking my Steam Deck because my sister's generally considering, uh, if, if my nephew's listening to this podcast, which you shouldn't be, close your ears. I think my sister's considering getting him a Steam Deck. I'm just nervous about my 13 year old, nearly 13 year old nephew mm. and my Steam Deck. Yeah. Mm, that could be fun. Oh, all right. Anyway, Tom, thank you so much for your time and thank you. we will roll the outro. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cross Wires. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion and we'd love to hear your thoughts. So please drop us a note over to podcast at crosswires.net. You can also drop us a comment on the post or if you're a good pod user, why not start a discussion there too? You can also join our new Discord server at crosswires.net forward slash Discord. We've got forum channels for each episode and we'd love you to join the discussion there. You can also follow us on Mastodon at crosswires at masthead.social. And of course, you can find the show in all the good podcast apps and all the really bad ones too. If you'd like to check out more of our content, head on over to crosswires.net slash YouTube for all our videos and keep an eye on our Twitch channel at crosswires.net slash live for our upcoming streams. If you like what we heard, please do drop a review in your podcast directory of choice. It really does help spread the word about the show. And of course, if you can spare even the smallest amount of financial support, we'd be incredibly grateful. And you can support us at ko-fi.com slash crosswires. That is ko-fi.com slash crosswires. Until next time, thanks for listening.